following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Um, there's lots of men here at CLF in their 20s and 30s who are trying to raise boys. Um, and, and they're in this culture, and the message that they're hearing over and over, and the message that their boys are hearing over and over in this world is, your masculinity is toxic. It's a poison, and you need to get, you need to get rid of it. Okay, and don't let your boys grow up to be toxic. Essentially, feminize your boys. Okay, that's the message that we're being fed every day by this culture. That's the propaganda that's going on in this battle. And they're asking, listen, how do we raise boys to be godly men? And what does that even look like? I think, I think I want strong boys. How does strong and godly actually meet? Okay, now these all sound like simple questions, but try to answer it. And all of a sudden you're like, you know, I don't know if I've thought through that enough. And listen, personally, I know young men and I know grown men. Uh, who are reacting to this cultural narrative. You see, God has hardwired something into men, a desire for purpose to live with strength and to ultimately conquer evil. And you tell them that everything in them is wrong, and they're going to push back. Okay, and we see that going on out in the world today. Perry, I think you lost me, brother. I'll keep going. You guys can probably still hear me. Okay, there you go. Um and because the Christian community in general has been pretty quiet on this, what's happening is these guys are looking for other role models. They're following Joe Rogan and Andrew Tate on the Internet manosphere instead of looking to Scripture and seeing what godly men do and looking to the church to figure out what godly masculinity is. And see, the problem is these hollow men on the Internet, what they peddle is an unrestrained and an unredeemed masculinity. It may possess, by common grace, some elements of truth, uh, but ultimately, like any polluted spring, those who drink from it will poison their soul and will corrupt the very thing they're trying to recover. Okay, so that's not helping them. Now, if you find yourself in any of these narratives, listen, this year is put together for you. My goal today is not to answer every question about masculinity, about raising boys, about engaging the culture, or exhaustively cover what Scripture has to say about it, because you guys probably want to go home sometime today. Okay. Um, If you want a good book on it, this is a fantastic book. It's called The War on Men uh, by Owen Strand. There's another great book that a bunch of guys in church are doing right now, which is called Titus 10. There's some actually pretty good material out there on this right now. My goal this morning is to do a couple things. Number one is to make you aware of the battle. Because if we don't know where the battle is, we're going to lose it. Okay. Number two, I want to show you that Scripture does have a clear framework on how to think about biblical masculinity. And finally, I want to point you ultimately to what I think the stakes are in this battle. We'll have two more breakfasts and a two-day conference at the end of the year. We're going to continue to cover this topic at length this year, and our hope is to give you guys a framework to navigate yourselves and your families through this, and also, honestly, to know how to speak into the culture with some biblically informed responses to this chaos. Okay, but... But that's the chaos. Okay, enough about that, but I just want you to know what's going on. But God is a God of order. Amen? So so let's throw the garbage aside for a minute, and let's see if we can build something ordered, something logical, something stable 
um, let's back the bus up and let's build a systematic theology for gender and specifically for masculinity. Okay. Because this is a men's breakfast. Amen. Okay. Just making sure you guys are awake <laughs> to the end. So sort of to figure out, uh, this system, you've got to answer one question. And the question is why men, not why humans, not why Christians, but why males, if God is infinitely wise in what he does, he does on purpose with a plan then why did God make men? What are you here for as a man? So I have a slide up here. You guys know what that is? It's a toaster, right? In case the government's listening. That's an AR-10. I built that AR-10. I'm actually pretty proud of that. It's got a, a JP Enterprises match-grade barrel on it. It's got a Trigicon 3-18 to uh, AccuPoint scope. It's got a, a Geisley 3.5-pound trigger. I can tell you everything about that AR-10. It's purpose-built. Okay, I made that thing for one purpose. Listen, guys, if we are purpose-built, if God made us and everything in us for a purpose, don't you think it's important that we know what that purpose is? What are you purpose-built for? Now, the good news is Scripture answers that question. Uh, and I have to apologize. I'd love to be pre- preaching from one text today. That's my preference. But to cover this topic, I'm going to be in a number of texts. So the, the passages will be up on Scripture. You're welcome to follow me in your Bibles. I'd encourage it. Um, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's called the creation mandate, guys. We know he created them male and female. They're equal but different, equal in value before God, but different in role. What God was creating was a team. And together, as they each embrace their role, they're to fulfill that creation mandate. They're to go into the world be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. And he created males, he created men to be sacrificial leaders and females to joyfully lend their strength and wisdom and grace to help their husbands succeed and subdue. And together they image forth, in other words, they bring God's image forth into the world. And as they fruitfully multiply, they raise a bunch of little image bearers, right? Now at COF, we actually understand that. We're pretty good at it. Church is full of fruitful little image bearers. So so that's why God made us. It actually sounds pretty simple, right? Seem pretty easy if we do that? Well, it's easy because it sounds easy because it is easy. But But the culture wants to undo or flip every one of God's created orders. What is the feminist movement, the homosexual or the transgender movement? It's the world trying to undo God's created order. It's trying, it's trying to turn it on its head. And why do you suppose that is? Because the enemy doesn't want creation to work. It's pretty simple. Because if creation works, if God's design works, then God's perfect wisdom is vindicated. There's human flourishing and God is glorified. Let me say that again. If God's created order works, then God's wisdom is vindicated. There's human flourishing. And God is glorified. See, aren't those the three things we want? And they're the three things the enemy hates. That's why he's constantly trying to turn God's created order on its head. Okay. So different in role, we tackled that a little bit last year. We looked at men's roles of leadership. 
Scripture says men are created for leadership, specifically servant leadership in the home and in his church. Men are to lead, to take initiative on the family team, to prayerfully and purposefully move forward into the world and subdue it within his sphere and image forth God. And as he does this, he fulfills three very important roles to his family and to those under his care. And these three roles are provider, protector, and spiritual shepherd. Okay, guys, this is important. This matters. If you forget everything else I said this morning, I want you to remember this. If you are a man, if you indeed stand up to pee, you were created by God to fulfill these three offices, provider, protector, and spiritual shepherd, to care for those that God puts under your care. Now, I could say it with just provider and protector, because what does a shepherd do but provide and protect its sheep, right? But this is why I added spiritual shepherd. And listen to this. The tendency for us as guys is to say, yeah, I have a good job. I provide well for my family. I have an AR-15 or an AR-10 or probably several. And I have an everyday carry. I'm packing right here. And 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 if anybody messes with my family, then they're in for a world of hurt. I'm a good protector, right? And to that, I'd say, yeah, great. That's good. You've got the physical covered, but what about the spiritual? Okay. How many of you remember two weeks ago, Dave preached on Lot in Sodom? You guys remember that sermon? It's very good. And when he told the story about Lot being willing to throw his young virgin daughters unprotected out to a crazed mob and say, do with them as you see fit. What was your reaction? Did your fist get pretty tight? Did your jaw get pretty tight? Did you say, what a sack? He's not protecting his family at all. Did you get kind of hot on the back of your neck? Well, guys, here's something to consider. We are all men, women, and children, body and soul. And the soul is eternal. If you protect your family physically, but abandon them spiritually, or leave them to the spiritual provision and protection of your wife? Are you really fulfilling the role God has given you as provider and protector of their souls? Because this culture wants to do to your children what Sodom would have done to Lot's daughters. Okay, get your mind wrapped around that, guys. They need your protection and your provision as their spiritual shepherds. Provider, protector, spiritual shepherd, okay? Now, just a side note for the guys who aren't married, and there's there's a bunch of single guys here today, young guys. Praise God for you, and praise God you're here, and I hope you're listening. I don't want you to hear that to be a man you have to be married. That's, that's not what I'm saying. However, married or not, you also were created to fill those three offices. For instance, if you are a man... If you are of age and you're capable of working, but you're sitting home letting somebody else take care of you and mooching off them, you're not being a man. Okay? And you don't have to be married to be a spiritual protector or a spiritual shepherd. Many single guys have thriving opportunities to spiritually shepherd their own family members. I know guys that are doing it. Single guys that are caring for his family both above them and below them. And there's a whole church full of young guys who are looking for somebody to pour into them spiritually. And so the point is, 
You don't have to be married to be leaning into those three offices, but you have to set your mind to do it. You don't want to waste your time. One day, should God, by his kind intention, provide you a wife, you'll need to fill this office for a family. But during this time, while you're single, you need to be figuring out how to fill those roles. That matters. Okay, so that's biblical manhood. That's why God made men. Okay, you got that? Biblical masculinity. That's what we're getting to. Biblical masculinity, then, is the clothing you put on. Think about it this way. It's what you dress in. It's the character traits necessary for you to fulfill your offices of biblical manhood. Every trait of masculinity that we talk about this morning is going to be tied to one of those three offices. Biblical masculinity is nothing more than the traits that God specifically gave to men to help him fulfill those three offices of protector, provider, and spiritual shepherd. Now, culture will tell you that those character traits are just a construct uh, put on to little boys by some boogeyman called the patriarchy, right? You've all heard that, which needs to be smashed and torn down along with every masculine construct and rebuilt into some genderless, amorphous blob of equity and inclusion, right? They're going to tell you that man made these things up, but the reality of it is God made these things. And he made them for us to step into. This morning, I'm just going to give you three practical attributes you'll find throughout all godly men in Scripture. Okay? But listen carefully. Biblical masculinity is not just these three traits. If biblical masculinity is the clothes we put on as we fulfill our role as provider, protector, and spiritual shepherd, the list of attributes is actually huge. Right. It will include first and foremost, a Christ centered, God exalting zeal for life, because what are we doing? We're imaging forth. We're taking God's image into the world. You better have that. It will include gentleness and compassion, tenderness and mercy and a myriad of other traits you see described in Scripture and manifest in Jesus. Because who was the perfect man? Jesus was the perfect man. I'm in no way suggesting that if you put on these three attributes, you're complete any more than I'd tell you, listen, if you put on pants and leave the house, you're dressed, right? You're not dressed. Don't hear that. But I didn't pick those others because, remember, the culture doesn't care about the other ones. Culture is just fine if men are tender, if they're gentle, and if they're full of mercy. They're just fine with a Jesus meek and mild who minds his own business and never questions theirs, right? They can tolerate the lamb, but not the lion. If Jesus and his men are soft and malleable and nice, the culture is going to let you alone because you're no threat to them. But if God's men are strong and courageous and steadfast, if he possesses true meekness, which is not weakness at all, but rather it's power under control, And behind that meekness is a ferocious tenacity to stand on biblical truth and not yield on moral principle. Then our culture will try to attack them and chew them up and spit them out. Why? Because if godly men are strong, courageous and steadfast, the culture has a fight on its hands. Satan has a fight on his hands. And the other side is also true. If we give these three up. We concede the fight. We concede the culture. And I believe ultimately we will concede the gospel. That's why this matters. 
So, so men are strong, men are courageous, men are steadfast. That's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to tackle the first two. Men are strong. So I actually asked Dane if I could have a picture from when he was in college. And, uh, thanks, Dane. Um, you know, listen, we think we hear the word strong and we automatically, automatically go to that, right? I got to work out more. Well, you ought to be able to do a push up, man, but. But consistently throughout Scripture, the picture of strength is that of a strong fortress. Something able to withstand hardship, strain, or exposure. Something strong does not crumble under pressure, unlike what the culture says. Strength. Men are courageous. Listen, men men are courageous, meaning fear does not control them. Faith-filled courage does. For these two, we're going to look at Old Testament. And I've got to be honest, guys, I love Old Testament. It's so fun. I love the characters. I love the warriors. It resonates with everything in me. It fits well with the passage. Strength and courage are not character traits you actually have to defend when you're reading the Old Testament. Did you realize that at least 16 times in the Bible, 16 different times, God specifically tells men to, quote, be strong and courageous? Here's an exchange between God and Joshua. We're in Joshua 1, as God is sending him to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. So so what's gone on? Israel's wandered in the desert for 40 years. They're at the edge of the Jordan. Moses has died. Leadership's being transferred to Joshua. Joshua had been the commander of the armies of Israel for 40 years. Joshua is a hardened warrior. But God has something to say to him. Joshua 1.5 says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Notice first, God's promise, God promises his presence before he commands him to be strong and courageous. You see, guys, our strength and our courage is based on one thing and one thing only. And that is that God goes with us. Amen. Then verse seven, he says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Notice second, Joshua is again commanded to be strong and very courageous, but he's warned. He's warned to walk according to God's commands if he wants the Lord's help. Our strength and our courage comes as we live our lives submitted to God's will, to God's word, and to God's way. This is not a rogue strength for my purpose based on my wisdom. I'm not to use my strength to put other people down to help myself. I'm supposed to execute that for the benefit of those under my care in accordance with God's word. Finally, verse 9, God tells him the third time in four verses, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice third, ultimately man's strength, his ability to withstand hardship, strain and exposure is from God, yet he still must act. He still must stand. He must go and he must fight. The strength of God meets with God's man only when he acts. It doesn't meet him on the couch. Men, this is one of the crucial truths of the Christian faith. God has chosen to work through men. Not that he can't work without us, not that he hasn't worked without us, but his normative way is to work through us. 
Just look at the gospel. God could have written it large on the sky for all of the world to see, but what did he do? He's chosen to entrust it into our hands and ask us to take it to the ends of the earth. Why? Because God is pleased to work through vessels of clay. Because when when God's men are animated by faith and courage, God is glorified. Amen. Now, I went and I looked up every location in Scripture I could find where men are commanded to be strong and take courage. And all but one instance, God's presence and or man's obedience are also included in the same text. I thought that was really interesting. Even in one of my favorite passages on strength, which is 1 Kings 2.2, this is David's last charge to Solomon, his son, right before he dies. David looks at Solomon and he says, Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. What a parting word from your dad. Can you imagine that? His dad is King David, the warrior king, the slayer of giants. And he looks at him and he says, son, be strong, show yourself a man. But what's the next thing that David says, do you think? He says, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies. He's saying, Solomon, be strong. But you can't only be strong, or you can only be strong as you walk in God's ways. So that's strength and courage. The third point is men are steadfast. And and for a definition of that, I looked it up. Steadfast is, is defined as firmly loyal or constant, unswerving. Think of steadfastness this way. Steadfastness is strength and courage exercised over time with unwavering resolve. Okay, So you can see very plainly uh, that the men are strong and courageous as we protect and provide for God's people. And finally, men are to be steadfast. You know, every example in Old Testament is awesome. I love the Old Testament. And the illustrations are very helpful. But ultimately, all of these examples, all of these types, find their fulfillment in the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Strength and courage may appear plainly in the Old Testament narrative, but strength and courage actually clothe Jesus as he takes the Via de la Rosa, which is the road to the cross. Remember Luke's gospel, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's come to the final point of no return. Judas has gone out to betray him, and he'll soon return with the Roman soldiers. In agony of soul, knowing full well what's coming, Jesus cries, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And we know the answer because immediately following this, he turns, he wakes up the sleeping disciples, and he says, get up, guys. Let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And he turned and he leaned into what was ahead of him. Then he took our punishment, endured God's wrath. The most fearful and fearsome thing in all of creation is not the woke left or or society or the culture. The most fearsome, fearful thing in all of creation is the wrath of God. And Jesus took that so that you and I, who have bowed our knee to Christ as Lord, would not have to. And likewise, steadfastness finds its ultimate expression in Christ. In Luke's gospel, he makes a powerful statement about Jesus in chapter 9, verse 51. He says, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
That says Jesus, knowing full well what's coming, knowing what lies ahead, he turned and he faced into Jerusalem and he headed to the cross. This, friends, is resolute love. It's unwavering resolve of your Savior to act with strength and with courage to protect us from the wrath of God and to provide for our deepest need to be reconciled to God. The just for the unjust, the sinless for the sinful, the infinitely strong for the immeasurably weak. Jesus was steadfast to the end, and as such, he is the ultimate provider, protector, and spiritual shepherd. So so men, God's men, take a stand and fight for the glory of that king. Amen? All through Old Testament, God's men took a stand and fought for their king. Israel was fighting for geography, for genealogy, and a physical kingdom. The kingdom of God to them was wherever the Ark of the Covenant rested. That was the dwelling place of the glory of God. Its physical borders represented the reach of the kingdom. That's why they would fight to drive out the Philistines. And they'd fight physical battles for a physical kingdom. We live this side of the cross this side of the gospel, to the creation mandate of the garden, Jesus has now added the great commission. As you go into the world, fulfilling the creation mandate, make disciples. When Jesus came, he took the kingdom from the physical Israel, and he gave it to spiritual Israel, which is to us, to the church. Ours is not a geography to defend or a physical kingdom The United States is not God's chosen nation, and our fight is not to preserve this nation. The kingdom today is the kingdom of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is where we see the glory of God on display today. Amen? Today, the warrior heroes are not the Joshua's or the Caleb's, who take their stand against the giants and the fortified cities and hack their enemies to bits with the sword. It's the Nate Saints and the Jim Elliot's who give their very life to expand the kingdom. It's the Spurgeons and the Sproles who boldly declare the word of God and are poured out like drink offerings to protect the purity of the gospel and the fidelity of God's church to ensure that the kingdom will endure. It's the Finleys and the Blocks and the Herds and the many families in our church who will quietly pour out their lives to raise boys to be the kind of men who will depend fully on the strength of Christ in them, but then will get off the couch and engage the world in his strength. And it's the dads who teach and raise their girls to find those kind of men and then give all of their strength to help those men accomplish their vision together to take the image of God into the world. That is biblical masculinity. That is what the culture hates because those men will stand against the gates of hell with the gospel and overcome. Amen. That's why there is a war on men, on those kind of men. The question to us today, guys, is are we those kind of men? Now I'm going to end with a story and the story is why I believe we can't lose biblical masculinity or we risk losing the gospel. The year is 1554. The country is England, 
and its queen is Queen Mary Tudor, who was dubbed Bloody Mary because she spilled the blood of nearly 300 English martyrs. She's reinstated the death penalty for heresy, which at the time was defined as any deviation from the Catholic doctrines of faith. An English Bible translator and pastor named John Rogers is arrested because he has rejected the false Catholic doctrines surrounding the Lord's Supper and the Catholic teaching that you can buy indulgences to lessen the consequences of sin for yourself and for your loved ones. In other words, the Catholic Church believes that you could buy your way out of purgatory or somebody else's way. During his Bible translation work, Rogers had come under conviction that faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone was sufficient to save. And this he regularly preached. This quickly set him at odds with the newly arrived Queen Mary, and she had him thrown in prison in January 1554. Finally, over a year later in 1555, the sheriff comes to transport Rogers from Newgate Prison to his hometown of Smithfield, where he had preached and ministered. And there he was to be burned alive at the stake. When he arrived, the sheriff ordered him or offered him a full pardon if he would simply recant. If he would say he had changed his mind on the doctrinal issues in the Catholic Church, he could have his life. To this, Rogers summarily replied, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. At the time, Rogers was married. He, had, he and his wife had ten children, the last of which was actually born while he was in prison. He'd never seen that tenth child. As they transported him to Smithfield and he walked to the stake, his wife and his ten children stood and watched their dad walk by. Fox's Book of Martyrs describes the scene this way, and I quote, This sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could no way move him but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and the quarrel of the gospel of Christ. He was reported to sing aloud the 51st Psalm as he burned alive, standing firm, lifting his arms to heaven until the last flames consumed him. G.K. Chesterton famously said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. What was behind Rogers was the eternal salvation of his children and the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. He loved Jesus and the power and purity of his gospel more than he loved his own life. And he stood at the stake and he burned to protect that gospel for those he hoped it would save. Now listen, guys, I I don't share this as some emotional manipulation or to try to amp you up to go be more courageous Christians. That's not my point. I share this to remind us all that throughout history, being a man of God has required strength and courage and steadfastness. And it has often come at a cost. There's nothing new. Rather, I'm pointing you back to what it has always been normal for men to do. And I'm not here to prescribe to you the things you should stand for or stand against or even where the line is. That's not what I'm doing. But what I am here to persuade you of is this. You are purpose built by God to stand. To 
stand for his glory, to stand on his word, and to be strong and courageous and show yourself a man. That is how we must live and raise our sons and grandsons. And that's how we'll provide and protect a pure gospel for the next generation. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.